Out of curiosity, how many of you guys actually got baptized last week? Raise your hand. Raise your hand really high. You got baptized last week. Congratulations. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's great. Um, I think there's about 50 people or so that got baptized. It was amazing. Um, just hearing their testimonies and seeing what God was doing. You know, I, I kind of feel like I say this almost every year, um, but it's almost like every year outdoes itself uh, from the year previous. Um, this was definitely by far the most amazing, I think, baptism I've ever had the privilege of being able to be a part of in 20 years of being at this church, and it was just really amazing on, on a number of different levels. So anyways, thanks for praying, thanks to you who got baptized, and uh, we're stoked to see what God uh, has in store for your life, um, and that in a lot of ways was sort of a, a momentous occasion to kind of mark entry into God's family, in which we're proud to say, you're part of us. We love you. We're happy you're part of that family. So we are going to jump into the Bible, which is what we typically do on Sunday mornings. We take books of the Bible and we teach through them. Right now we're in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some very eager uh, helpers, servants that would love to get you guys some Bibles. So raise your hand. They'll be happy to get you guys one. Ephesians, uh, we're going to open up into two different passages. So Ephesians chapter 1 And uh, we're going to read that in a moment, Ephesians chapter 1, but I also want you to turn to, because this is where we're at, is Ephesians chapter 4. So we're reading two passages, one from chapter 4, but then one that's kind of anchored in chapter 1. And uh, before we jump in, um, I came across a video this past week that I really liked, and I felt in a lot of ways kind of encapsulated uh, or captured, I should should say, the heart of Paul. I think what Paul is sort of building upon, in fact... um, one of the reasons why we're going to anchor everything into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 and 9 and 10, um, which we'll come back to in a moment here, is really because of kind of what this video is going to depict um, and everything else that Paul is going to begin to talk about in the remainder of the, la- and the, and the letter actually is linked to or connected to what he declares in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 um, and 9. Um, so this video actually does a really good job at kind of describing um, God's larger purposes in the world. Uh, why it's so important for us to understand the larger purposes as to what God is doing in the world is sort of the distinction between looking at a painting up close, noticing the paint dabs or the different types of droplets or the different types of technique by which the painter painted. So you can look at it and say, well, they used the color red and mixed with greens and all sorts of other colors, and they did it in a particular unique pattern or style or way that's unique to this particular period of time or unique to this particular artist. But you can spend all your time focusing upon the droplets or the technique or the colors that you have absolutely no idea at all what the actual larger picture is. And in a lot of ways, um, maybe this is part of more so a confession of my own failure, maybe as a young disciple of Christ, I spent many, many years of my Christian walk trying to delve into the Bible, reading the Bible, focusing on the Bible, studying the Bible, but much of my focus and study were on basic words or on paragraphs or maybe just a particular book, as well as that was. And, you know, you have, maybe you've heard people describe, you know, doing word studies. And that's really good. It's great doing word studies. But I would have to say that the majority of my first few or several years of being a Christian was focused on really trying to understand certain Greek words or Hebrew words and how they fit in a particular context. I didn't know the whole story. I didn't understand the story. I didn't see the painting. I didn't see the beauty. I was focused on the paint dobs or the different colors, the technique of the writers. I didn't know the story. 
And in a lot of ways, I think a lot of Christians, we are guilty of that, or we kind of fall prey to that. And so um, this video that you guys have watched in a lot of ways kind of gives the big picture of the story, and then right after that, I'll pray, and then uh, we'll begin to take a look at uh, the two verses that we talked about and kind of unpack them for you. So here we go. ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling 
among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die. But that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. We believe the best way to understand the Bible is to look at its overall right. narrative. That's so good. we're going to do this by taking... So hopefully that video was, if anything, thought-provoking. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we will get to work, beginning to take a look at the passages of Scripture that we'll be looking at. One in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 7, and the other is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. So why don't you join me as we pray, and then we'll begin to take a look at this. God, we ask you right now that you would uh, inform our hearts. God, we admit that a lot of times we bring our own presuppositions to the Bible, our own notions, our own desires, our own thoughts. And uh, God, none of us read the Bible uh, as a blank slate. Every single one of us has something that has formed us, whether it be false theology, wishful thinking. And God, so we ask you to help us to just simply approach your word and let it speak to us for what it says as it plays into the larger whole, that we wouldn't just simply be guilty of looking at little paint daubs or various techniques or colors of different authors, but that we would be able to grasp and catch a glimpse of this grand narrative, this big story of what you're doing in this world and how we are a part of that. So we ask you right now for your help, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump in, and uh, I actually want to start with the passage in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, um, and the reason why I want to start with that is, in a lot of ways, it kind of ties into a little bit what the video had talked about, and it's kind of fresh in our minds. So now, 
I want to think of it this way. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 is sort of the pivot point for Paul. Every single thing, there's a lot of P's in that sentence. There's a lot of things that Paul is now in throughout the remainder of the epistle going to unpack and talk about. But for Paul, everything begins, it starts, it flows out of Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 9 and 10. So I want to read that and try to understand why uh, I would even suggest that or say that. So follow along as we read the next slide. It'll give us this. So Ephesians 1, verse 9 and 10 says this. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if you'll notice that verse, there's several times or occasions in which Paul describes things along the lines of like the mystery of his will now being unveiled. Paul talks about that this is God's purpose, that this is God's plan. So in other words, if you think of it this way, what Paul is actually describing is that this is a mission statement of God. What is God doing? Well, Paul tells you what God is doing. So he removes the mystery. The idea of mystery is not so much something that is hidden from us until we get a genius like Monk to come along and kind of give us clues and help us figure things out. But the mystery that he's revealing here is the mystery that was once hidden but now has been made revealed or known. Um, In this particular case, he's going to reveal to us how it's been made known. But the point of the matter is that what Paul is saying is that this is God's mission statement. This is the big thing that God is up to in this world, that God is doing right now, currently, and everything, every subsequent thing that Paul is going to now begin to unpack plays into or fits into this large narrative. So I'll give you a couple examples of this. Paul talks about marriage later on in Ephesians, uh, later on in the book, and he begins to talk about how marriage, you know, between a husband and wife, and how it actually fulfills a picture or a portrait of what God is up to, Um, and marriage is a uniting language, right? That's what marriage is, if you're, in case you're wondering. Like, I thought marriage is about divorce, because that's the broken world we live in. But no, actually, marriage is about uniting. It is union. It is uh, bringing together two very different, unique, distinct people that, for the most part, may or may not have much in common with each other, but they come together as one flesh. And so what Paul is basically defining or describing is that this is what God is up to in this world. The implication is that right now, the world is out of sync. It's not unified with God's intentions. Anybody agree with that statement? Is the world, let me put it into a question, is the world currently right now in sync with the ways of God? No, not at all. Uh, let me be, maybe ask it another way. Is the world in which you see, in which you live in, and the world in the life, maybe even put it this way, make it personal, the life in which you live, does it have everything to do in common with Jesus in the way that he lived? No. So rather than healing people, we use our tongue to slash people. Rather than being kind to people, we are jerks to people. Rather than, you know, get the idea. So the point of the matter is, is that we realize there is a, uh, there, there is, there's something that is uh, askew, something that is not quite right that God is promising through what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, to basically set right. The word that he used here, uses here is the uh, uh, the phrase, I should say, to unite. It's a great word. Um, take a look at the next slide. I'm going to do my best to try to pronounce it. Uh, I've been pronouncing it all weekend long, but I'm probably going to hack it right now. Uh, Anakipa le- uh, Leo. Anakipa. No, I'm not even going to try it because you sound stupid. Whenever you hear those things, you're like, that guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. You're right. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not Greek. Uh, but anyways, it's a great word. In fact, when I heard the guy saying it on the little 
Bible software that I have, I'd be like, man, if you had a beat to that, that actually would like make some good rhymes. Like that's it's a great word. And the idea behind this, it's, it's actually a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And here's a couple of different ways by which that particular word is actually translated in different translations. So for example, uh, the ESV uh, basically describes what God's up to is that he is uniting heaven and earth. Take a look at uh, King James Version. He says that he's going to gather together in one, bring together heaven and earth, which are currently out of sorts with each other, not synchronized, not united, not firing together. They will be brought together. In the New Living Translation, it says that bring together under the authority. The implication is that it's not currently under the authority. In other words, it's doing its own thing. It's living according to its own ways. It has, uh, it's an authority unto itself, right? And then another way to think about this is the NIV in which he says to bring unity to. The word uh, that he uses there um, basically is a compound word um, to reorder, but the also another word that's interesting that's in there uh, in that particular Greek word is we get the, uh, the English word head. Um, and the idea is to bring under the headship or to reorder again. Think of it this way. A decapitation is what? Take the head off. I don't even know if recapitation is actually a word, but I'm going to make it up right now because I, I looked up and I didn't find it anywhere. But recapitation is to take something that has lost its head and to put its head back on itself. To give it that, that you can do that and not necessarily have life, uh, hence Frankenstein. But the reality is, you can have artificial life, but what God is up to in this world right now is that the way that things were originally created are living as if they are a head or a life or a source of life unto themselves. And what God is saying is that right now, it's, it's really not a source unto itself, of life unto itself. It's dying. Right? The world we live in is dying. Our relationships are in a perennial state of dying. Our life that we oftentimes hold on to so dearly and long for and wish we can just live forever and ever and ever and ever, uh, we're dying. And the older you get, the more you become uh, and uh, the more you begin to realize that in very poignant terms. The younger you are, the less you're prone to believe that. Because we tend to look at our youthful strength and think, I'm not going to die. Well, the moment you start hitting like around you know, late 30s, 40s, whatnot, you're going to start noticing there are things that are not, not working quite right. Things don't tuck in the way they used to tuck in. Uh, your body begins to break down in ways in which you never even dreamed of by which it uh, began to break down. I mean, for example, all right, uh, for 20 years I've pastored this church. I never once even thought ever about my voice ever going out, ever. Like, that was never even on my radar screen. I don't think I've ever even heard of a pastor, ever, in my life, of, like, having the situation that I had. But, you know, obviously, you know that you had it. Uh, you begin to find out that there's other pastors that go through that type of thing. But I was never on my radar screen. So the thought of the matter is that I have a vocal, uh, vocal cord, vocal cords that if I'm not careful with, they will and can perhaps go out. So fragile. My life is fragile. Your life is fragile. So the point of the matter is that what Paul is saying is that we live in this world in which things are not connected. The earth, the world, the system of this world in which we live in is not in the right relationship with God. It's out of order. But what God is up to is reordering, reestablishing this order. And Paul says that he will unite all things in heaven and things on earth. So again, as the video pointed out, the reason why that is, is because mankind, which was God's chiefest of all creations, basically, as you saw in the video so aptly well, even though it was, uh, you know, pixelated out, 
man basically says, we don't want you, God. We want to be a law unto ourselves. We want to be an authority unto ourselves. And so rather than living according to the ways in which God says, this is how life flourishes. Mankind basically says, I think we know how life flourishes, and we will basically live according to our own understanding and wisdom, and then find flourishing. And instead of flourishing, we find that we languish, ultimately ending in death. So we live in a broken world. So this promise that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, really is unbelievable news. In fact, it's good news. In fact, it's gospel news. Because we live in a world that is desperately broken, fractured, destroyed, ruined, and in desperate need of help. And the good news is that God says, I will do something about that brokenness, and I will restore, and I will heal, and I will bring back life into those places and pockets where there was nothing but death. It's really good news. And what Paul is going to begin to do now, as I mentioned earlier, this is sort of the pivot point for everything else that Paul is going to say throughout the rest of the book, that everything in Paul's mind is linked back to these, this hope, this plan, this mission statement, if you would, of God. That he is in this process of taking earth, which is currently out of sorts with God and all the inhabitants upon the earth, out of sorts with God. And he's doing a work to bring things back into realignment. Now, does that mean, again, that not, will everybody at some point be saved? No, that's a topic for a whole other subject, uh, for a whole other time in which we can delve into. But the reality is, is no, at some point, Jesus did say that there are going to be those that refuse to be a part of this union, be a part of this work of God. They still consistently want to be in authority under themselves, and God basically says, you will get what you are asking for. C.S. Lewis kind of has that statement. He says, you know, there's that powerful reality is that there are two different types of people. There are those that will one day say, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God will say, thy will be done. That's hell. That's death, that's destruction, that's eternal, ultimate brokenness when God says, that will be done. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're requesting because your path that you're on is one to brokenness. This world in which we live in is one on a path to brokenness and destruction. And God is doing something in this world to undo that. So with that being said, we need to jump in now to Ephesians chapter 4, and this is sort of the main body of the text that we'll take a look at and then wrap things up. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, um, I'll begin by reading it. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner, this is Paul again writing, prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the hope of one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, but grace was given to me, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there's a lot of words that were stated right here and some of us may not, may not have followed along. But I, I want to try to go back and begin to unpack some of these things so we begin to really understand what Paul is actually talking about. So to do that, I want to basically look at three different things. One, well, first of all, we'll take a look at the means of God's unifying project. In other words, how is God actually doing this? What's the means by which he is uh, using this? What's his 
uh, Archimedean lever. Like, how is God actually getting this whole project off the ground, lifted, and beginning to go somewhere? What's God doing? What's his means? We'll take a look at that. Second thing, we'll take a look at the sign or the symbol of this unifying project that it has begun. What's the sign and symbol that this unifying project has begun? Now, I'm going to use the word unifying because this is the language that Paul actually uses in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says God is in this project, this process of uniting. So take the word unite and just add the reality of unifying. This is what God is up to. So with that being said, we'll finish with the final thought of the motivation to live according to this. So in other words, how do we do this? What motivates us to do this? Because I think we can all argue that there are lots of different ways by which we can motivate ourselves. Some forms of motivation actually lead to further oppression and brokenness, forms of religion, external forms of religion that ultimately lead to our own forms of destruction and pain and hurt. Rather than doing away with the pain and hurt and oppression, we just sort of begin to keep, keep cycling over and over and over again. But God is doing something to remove all of the pain and hurt. In fact, this is why in the book of Revelation it says, and John describes it, and I looked and I saw that there was no more tears and no more pain or no more sorrow, that God is moving creation towards this end of which heaven and earth will be united, come together. No more pain, no more sorrow. This is where God's taking things. So, first of all, let's jump in and begin to take a look at the means by which God is really bringing into play this unifying project. All right. So, in short, I'll just kind of ask, what's the answer to this? You guys should know already. We've been studying this book for four chapters now for quite a while. What's the answer to? What is the means? How is God doing this? Maybe here's another word. What's the mediator? What's the process? What is God? How does God set this whole thing going? Jesus, right? Okay, let me just say something here. Anytime the pastor or Sunday school teacher, whoever asks the question, it's pretty safe to just say, if you answer Jesus, you're probably, for the most part, always going to be right, all right? Always going to be right. So even if you didn't even know, you're like, I have no idea what he's asking. Uh, if you just say Jesus, you are doing really good. So Jesus, yes, of course, Jesus is the answer. So I want to read you a couple key verses or phrases or ideas that kind of pop up from chapter 1 all the way throughout to where we're at right now. So here's a couple of them. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says this, according to his purpose. Uh, how is his purpose set forth? Well, Paul says, in Christ. It's set forth in Christ. The word Christ, we've said this many times, is the uh, Hebrew word, um, or comes from the Hebrew word, uh, 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 Mashiach, uh, or the anointed one is in the Greek. The idea is that of a king. So when he's talking about the Christ, he's talking about Jesus is the king. So who is currently the king of the world, right? Well, I would say the part of the problem is that we've got lots of kings. That's our problem. No one's unified because every, and now who's the king in this church or within your home. This is where we oftentimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, because most of the times we're not, the, re- the real answer is that we want to be in charge. We want to be the king. We want to be the one with the authority and making the declarations and whatnot. And the problem is, is at some point we begin to butt heads with those around us. And when we begin to butt heads, then that begins to create jealousy and anger and anguish and anxiety and threats and all these other types of things, sometimes even violence. This is the world in which we live in. You keep kind of cycling that out throughout the whole world. We have a world that basically in which there's 7.5 billion kings on planet Earth, right? And what God is wanting to do is to bring about a world in which there's one king, one king, 
And that one king is a good king. And the words and the decrees that he issues forth are life-giving, life-generating. So he says that he has set forth his purpose in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, by grace, is a common phrase, a common verse, by grace you've been saved and raised, uh, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose made known in Christ our Lord. And again, we just read this. But again, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that particular phrase or the verse could actually be understood as basically God saying, one of the greatest gift that you've been given, the greatest gift that you've been given is Jesus. God has given us something that is absolutely beyond comprehension. In other words, the idea is that the greatest treasure that we could ever get, God has given it to us. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ is all about. In other words, maybe put it in another way. What really I think Paul is trying to assert and communicate, even though he may not necessarily use metaphors like this, we will though, the idea is that Jesus is the lead role. He's the hero of the story. He's not the lead support role. He's not supporting the lead. He is not sort of a, just a, 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 a marginalized uh, actor that comes on the scene every once in a while. He is the main support role. And what that means is that you and I aren't. See, the problem is, is that we live our lives to such a degree whereby we want to be the lead role. We want people to see us as being significant. And when we don't, we feel as if our lives are meaningless. We feel as if we've been disrespected. And that leads to anger and pain and hurt and anxiety. And in an absolutely unfortunate reality, to some degree, this is exactly what happened in Isla Vista this past weekend. I watched the video of the guy. It was absolutely horrible. But the reality is the guy's video is, is describing and talking to the little video camera that he posted up to YouTube just before he went out and created, caused the massacre, was he was in essence saying, I've absolutely been disrespected by all sorts of people, especially women, and I'm hurting. I'm angry, and I want to kill you. That's what he did. In a sense, it's this idea of we want, now that's an extreme example. Many of us, most of us will never, ever get our lives into that particular place. But what we will do is we're like, I'm going to unfriend them, or I'm not going to talk to them, or I will give them the cold shoulder, or if I'm in a community or group with them, I will not look at them in the eyes. Or if they ask me a question, I won't respond. If they text me, I will block them. If they send me an email, I will send them back and ask the email. Those are all various forms of saying I hate you, and I will do what I can to push you away from me. He simply did it in the most extreme sense, pushing those who hurt him away from him by the most ultimate form, which is death. This broken world in which we live in. And yet what Paul is declaring is that Christ is the main role. He's the hero of this story. Again, it's another way of basically saying man is not the hero of the story. Our democratic society is not the hero of the story. Capitalism is not the hero of the story. Education for third world countries is not the hero of the story. All of those things may have their place in society. All of those things may have value in and of themselves to basically create pockets of civilization that are better than other pockets of civilization. But none of those in and of themselves have the power, the authority, the ability to bring about the sense of healing in this broken world. 
None of them, if I can even go further, have the power to bring about healing in your broken heart. And so what Paul is saying, very clearly, emphatically, and in fact, I even say it's the unified language and idea of the entire New Testament, is that Jesus is the means, the mediator, by which God is remaking this broken world into something new. This is what Christians mean. I mean, I realize a lot of times Christians get a bad rap like by saying you're very exclusive. You just simply say Jesus is the only way. But look, the reality is, is what we really mean by that is we're not saying that everybody else is messed up. I mean, in some ways, yes, everybody, but all of us, we're part of that messed up scenario. But what we're really saying is that Jesus is the sinless son of God that was sent by God. He is our creator who's come to make that which is broken right. That he is the means by which God has done this. He was not just a teacher telling us nice little pithy statements to memorize, to improve our lives. He was not Jesus' life coach. He was not Jesus, our, you know, our good friend. Jesus, our homeboy. It's not who Jesus is. He is Jesus, our savior and our king. And some of us, we hear that, and a little bit, that's offensive to us. We don't, we don't reason why that stings a little bit with us, because we're like, I want to be king. I don't like the idea of being under the authority of somebody else. But let me try to unravel that for you a little bit, because think about this. Because at the end of the day, every single one of us are under the authority of something. All of us. You cannot bypass this. You don't get a free pass. You cannot circumvent this. You cannot outflank the reality of something mastering you in your life. You may be mastered by the opinions of others. That masters you. What others think about you is what masters you. You will do everything you can in your power to wear the nice clothes, to drive the nice car, to have the good job, to have a particular type of looking uh, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend because they're sort of like this trophy to you that if you have somebody that does not meet a particular level of par excellence and somehow you are less than and your friends or your peers will think less of you, you're a slave. You're not free. But the point of the matter is, is that the gospel basically proclaims to us that God has come to reorder and rebuild and restore all of these things. And the way that he is doing this is through the lead role, the lead player, the hero of the story, which is Jesus has come to do this work. Second thing we'll take a look at is what's the sign of this, that this unifying project has begun? So next one is what's the sign that this unifying project has actually begun? Okay, so the idea that Paul, for Paul, it seems very clearly within the text, is that what Paul is basically saying is that the church, the church is the sign. It's one of the reasons why in chapter two and chapter three, Paul is like elated. If you read the passage along with us over the past several months, you realize that Paul is absolutely stoked to be part of this church. He's blown away when he looks out on the landscape and he sees Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and masters coming together in this gathering, this community, sharing their life with each other, giving life back to one another, pouring their hearts out for one another, not because they're forced to, but because they want to. They love each other. What Paul is saying is that the the church is the sign, it's the symbol that God has begun this absolutely beautiful restorative work here on planet Earth. So, 
I wrote this down. It just kind of encapsulates to some degree what I just said, but I'll read it. It says, for Paul, the church is the living reality. And the point of entry where the healing unity of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 4, 3, had already begun to break forth into this broken world. So for Paul, when he's looking at this thing called the church, they're in Ephesus. He's not looking at this group of people that are just, he's not looking at it from an optimistic perspective. Because Paul's very real. He realizes that the church is made up of sinful people. The church is made up of people that are broken. They're part of that broken world system. They've come in from that broken world system, and they're being remade to unlearn certain things that they simply learned their whole entire life from that broken world system and relearn something that is part of heaven. You know, that's where the church is, that every single one of us in this room right now are in some stage or some level, some place of maturity where we are unlearning the ways of this world and relearning the ways of God. It's one of the reasons why we need each other. So the idea is that for Paul, the church is not just simply a place where people gather together on a Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half, listen to a sermon, uh, send their kids off to children's ministry, sing a couple songs, maybe give a little money if you're feeling up to it. If you're not, then you just complain. Uh, And church is not just simply that to Paul. The church to Paul is literally this landmark symbol that heaven and earth have literally begun to come together and healing has begun to break forth in this broken world. This is amazing. Most of us, I would venture to say, have never even thought of you or your church or the church in that way ever. It's one of the reasons why, I think, that a lot of times Christians today sort of can say things like this. I love Jesus, but I... I'm really bothered by the church, and I don't want to be part of the church. What that demonstrates is you don't understand the church the way that Paul understood the church. You don't understand the church the way that every New Testament writer understood the church. To you, what you've come to understand is that the church is nothing more than a service that gets conducted on Sunday mornings and sometimes may issue forth dogma and cause people to get frustrated or hurt or burnt or sometimes do crazy, weird stuff. Uh, with the time, and so on and so forth. And the reality is that we don't understand what the church is. For Paul, it is this place where heaven and earth have begun to bring its healing upon the earth. Now, an objection. Does that mean that the church is going to change the world and make heaven come to earth? The answer is no, not in ultimate sense. That won't happen until one day Jesus comes back. I don't know really any theological ideas that would assume that all of them would say that when Jesus comes back he will restore all things in a fullness in a full type of a way but until that day the church is called to sort of be like this outpost the way that Rome everywhere Rome went and they began to set up these little outposts these uh, places in every part of the world in which they were they would set up um, soldiers they would set up a little community of people that were uh, fluent in the Roman tongue, or perhaps probably even Greek, that was the language of the day. And they were fluent in culture that was from Rome. In other words, these were Roman citizens living all throughout brand new areas that were just recently annexed by Rome. And Paul, in a lot of ways, basically looks at the church and says, you know what the church is? The church are these little pockets of citizens of heaven living in enemy-occupied territory, living according to rules and standards Mastered by masters that are crushing and oppressive. And the church is is this unbelievable sign that heaven and earth have begun to overlap. It's one of the reasons why Paul even says, you, 
speaking to the church, not you as individuals. I mean, you can take it as an individualistic perspective, but Paul speaks you, meaning plural, the church. You are the temple of God. You are the place where God has begun to bring new life into this broken world. I want to read you a quote. Um, Next slide. It's by a New Testament author and writer and theologian uh, named N.T. Wright, and here's what he says. He says, one thing that we can't do is pretend that unity and oneness aren't a central vital issue unless we're working to maintain, defend, and develop the unity we already enjoy in Christ and to overcome, demolish, and put behind us the disunity we find in ourselves in, we find ourselves in, we can scarcely claim to be following Paul's teaching. This is a powerful statement. What I've kind of discovered over the years is that any time there's ever any talk about unity, there's always sort of these massive um, addendums to it, like, well, you got to be careful, there's a false unity. And what I want to try to do is say, yes, there is a false unity. Yes, there are ways in which the church uh, historically has compromised its message in order to just simply create false unity. The point that Paul is making here is not that. What Paul is saying is that you, are, you already have unity in Christ. This is, what the, this is what the gospel has come to proclaim. This is what Jesus has come to do to make himself for one, uh, one body that is living out the restorative, redemptive, healing purposes that God has already begun and that we are called to be part of this. This is one of the reasons why Paul is going to begin to talk about how this begins to work out. So then if you think of it this way, the church, the church is actually called to work out this challenge to live out this call. It's one of the reasons why Paul describes it as a call from God uh, to begin to do the hard work of demonstrating this restorative and this healing work of God in this world. So I want you to think of it this way. If you're a Christian here today, you are, whether you know it or not, part of the church. Whether or not you're part of a local body really boils down to is as to whether or not how much you understand and value the local body, how much are you willing to be known by a local body, how much do you actually value the church in general, all of those questions need to be answered by you. So if, in other words, if you've been a Christian for, you know, let's say 10 years, and you go to, say, Calvary Sunday on Sunday mornings, and you've never really gotten a chance to meet many people around here, you've never served, maybe you've never even gotten involved in being a part of or giving money or giving your time or giving any other t- types of things, because at the end of the day, to some degree, there's, there's not a place of value of that church in your heart. Maybe you haven't seen the vision of what God is portraying through Paul about the church. But the reality is, is that if you are a Christian, all of us are part of the church. The larger body in which God is bringing forth redemption and healing to this broken world. So all of us are called to live out that challenge, to do the hard work of demonstrating this restorative healing work. And so the question that can be asked naturally is how? How do we do that? Well, Paul answers his own question because in the few verses that we just read, take a look at chapter four again. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul says. The way that we do this is with this eagerness to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. The word maintain indicates or implies we're not creating from scratch unity. 
what Paul is doing is going back to a point and a place and time in which unity began, in which God began to bring together heaven and earth. And that place and that point, Paul identifies as the church. That's where the unity began. So we're called to maintain that unity, which means if there are things the way uh, N.T. Wright described that are basically antithetical to unity, or in other words, that are at play in our lives that prohibit unity, we need to do the hard work of taking a look at our lives, at our hearts, and ask ourselves, why is there disunity? Why am I alienating other pe- myself from other people? Why am I marginalizing those that I should be embracing and loving? Why am I, rather than being hospitable to those that are part of my church family, why am I trying to distance myself from them? That's what Paul is saying. That's hard work, by the way. So the question then, naturally, is, well, then what does that look like? What does the hard work look like? Here's what Paul says. Here's Paul's answer. Again, listen carefully. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does that look like? Here's what Paul says. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The point that Paul is making is that what it looks like in the life of somebody that understands they are called to be this church, this body, this outpost, this glimmer of things to come. It looks like love. It looks like you look like you're humble. You look like you act like you are kind. You act like you are forgiving. All of these traits that Paul identifies in chapter 4. And there's, again, you know, maybe some of you guys have you know, read like in Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In a lot of ways, this is sort of a truncated list of the fruits or the fruit of the Spirit. The point of the matter is, is that the idea, when you think about each of these phrases, so um, take a look at each of these. Uh, take a look at the next, uh, no, sorry, this one, this is great. This is it, this is what I want to look at, perfect. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Okay, all of these are humanizing actions that breed uh, unity, welcome, and peace. So think about it this way. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. So let's just put this into a perfectly human level. In other words, on a horizontal level with other people that you know. When somebody responds to you or treats you or demonstrates these actions to you, in other words, they're humble, they're gentle, they are patient with you, and they are full of love. In other words, you can sit in their presence not feeling like you've got to be on your best game or behavior because at the end of the day, you know they still love you even though you may be a jerk. In that moment, they still love you. Those actions are unifying actions. Those actions draw us to each other. The opposite is true. The opposite of those actions are dehumanizing. And the opposite, you know, I just kind of think of it this way, like arrogance, obviously the opposite of humility, roughness, the opposite of gentleness, impatience, the opposite of patience. Hatred or fear, because the Bible kind of uses both to describe the opposite of love. First John, it talks about perfect love casts out fear. So it would seem that fear is also the opposite of love, but it also comes out in forms of hatred. So in other words, if you know someone in a relationship and you find yourself dealing with them, they're always arrogant, they're always really rough, they're not gentle, and they're always impatient with you. You do something, and they're just like getting angry with you and getting agitated and aggravated with you because you're not moving fast enough, or they are people that are creating hatred or fear in you. What do you want to do when you are in relationship with those type of people? 
Leave? Is that what someone said? Yes, that is the correct answer. Leave. In other words, you want to divorce from them as fast as you can. You want to depart. You want to exit stage left. You want to remove yourself. You want to get as far away from these people as you can because those actions undo unity. That's what Paul is saying is that God is at work doing these things within us to draw us together. So I want to finish with this, and I'm done. In fact, I'm going to have the worship team come on up because as they're coming on, I'll just wrap this up. The question needs to be asked, and how does this happen? What motivates us? What is the motivator for us to be able to do this? Because when you think about this, I can stop right now and be like, all right, guys, especially if you're a Christian, go out and be kind, be gentle, and be loving, and be a peacemaker, and be patient with all sorts of other people. And some of you actually will rise to that challenge and be like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because pastor said I should do it. And you're kind of that A-type personality where you love to rise to challenges and you love a good fight. And you're going to do the best that you can to go out and do it. Most of us may hear that and be like, I, I can't do that. How am I going to be patient? How can I be patient? How can I show kindness to people that are rude and my enemies? And how can I be kind to all these other types of people that are not kind with me? In other words... What we're really asking is how can we as a church really look like the church when we begin to realize how challenging and how hard this is? And the answer is, if you understand what Paul is saying, again, the mediator, Jesus, the means to which God has begun this project of restoration and healing in this world is his son, Jesus. To put this another way, to ask the question, how did God treat you? Well, God treated you, take a look at that last slide, God treated you with humility. Jesus came, not on a white horse with a sword in his hand to crush you, to cause fear in humanity's heart. Jesus came lowly with humility. Jesus came with gentleness. Think about how gentle, kind Jesus was. Jesus came with patience, extreme patience and love. Jesus, this is how he interacted and interfaced with you, to the degree that you see that, that this is how your God, your creator God has interfaced, has worked with you, even while you are still his enemy. That changes your heart. It causes you to begin to see this great call which God has placed upon the church to be this beacon of light in this world of darkness. And when the world begins to see the church work amongst itself in a way that is full of patience, kindness, gentleness, love, and peace. Those are characteristic traits that are not very common in this world. And when they see them, they're blown away. That's why Paul can look at these Gentile believers and say, I'm blown away that you are united with Jewish people. Paul's like, I understand up close and personal, the types of deep-rooted hatred that the Jews had for Gentiles. And Paul's saying, I see all of you coming together as one, as one. And Paul says, I know that this is a sign that God has begun this project of restoration, of healing, that we get to be swept up in, to be part of. And that's why Paul can look to us and say, therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, walk in a manner that's worthy, because this is how God has approached you.
I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll sing a couple songs. We have some communion in the back. And we take communion every single week as a way of reminding us of a meal. It's a meal that Jesus invites us to the table. It's a meal that reminds us that we are accepted in Christ. No matter who we are, no matter how we've lived, no matter what we've done, that by faith, that by trusting in what Jesus has done, we are free to come to that table. But God shows mercy, kindness, gentleness, love, humility to us so that then through us, we can be the vehicle, the means by which we can show kindness, gentleness, humility to others. And that becomes a light set upon a hilltop. That becomes salt to this earth that cannot be ignored. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm going to invite you to come to this table where you're accepted. You're accepted not because of how good you are or what you've done. You're accepted on the merits of Christ alone. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you are a Christian, I should say, and you are not walking in a way that you would say is consistent with that, I want to invite you to come in repentance to Jesus and say, God, I want to walk in a way that's worthy, that, that reflects you. I encourage you to partake of the communion as a way of reminding yourself afresh and anew of what the price was that was paid to bring your healing. Jesus absorbed pain so that you can be given life. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to sing, invite you to partake of communion. We have people that are going to be up available over by the cross. would love to pray with you. Anything that's going on in your life. It doesn't matter if you're not a Christian, you want to have someone pray for you. Maybe you've got questions. Have people pray with you, talk with you. If you have physical maladies, sickness in your body, bones in your body have some pray for you we believe the church is this outpost where god does healings maybe god wants to bring heaven to this place right now to bring healing over your body you never know jesus thank you that we can come to you and we come with hearts god of love and affection to you so help us to sing in a way god that just is consistent with the way in which you revealed yourself to us